0: We're in a time frame where the speed of innovation is really, really fast. So If you don't take advantage of the opportunity in front of you when it, when it appears, um, you're missing that opportunity. And Unfortunately, for a lot of founders who are on visas, it's not their choice that they have to miss that opportunity, it's the, it's the circumstances.
1: Welcome to Positive. Find us on Twitter at P-O-S-I, the number two I-V-E. This bi-weekly podcast is for active investors and founders just like you. Focused on venture scale positive impacts. I'm your host, Zeka Len, an angel investor in the private capital markets here in sunny SoCal. Today's guest is Nathan Pachizia, founding partner at Unchackled Ventures, headquartered in the Bay Area. This episode will include three sections first, birthplace, next, entrepreneurial risk, and last, one environment. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Thanks for having me, Zeka. It's a pleasure. It's really a pleasure. Um, Yeah, so I want to just break out right away into the sections on this show, because um, your thesis aligns so much about what you're doing with your background and such. So um, I just want to kind of go right into the first section, Birthplace, and ask you about your um, experience growing up and sort of how you got to where you are now.
0: Yeah, it's a compounding effect of a lot of micro decisions, but... uh... I was born in New Delhi, India, in a lower middle income business family. Uh, started working with my dad when I was young, and and that led me to a business degree and joined ABB, which is a Swiss Swede conglomerate. Um, joined them and started traveling a lot of Southeast Asia and Europe. Um, with because of which Deloitte found me and and brought me to Silicon Valley uh, in 2005. So. As a 25 year old on an H one B in Silicon Valley, working at Deloitte, um, started a practice within Deloitte, which is how I uh, found the world of startups for the first time. Uh, so, four and a half years, I was I was doing consulting, strategy consulting with startups. Then joined a startup. Then decided to start a company, and that that is how the whole concept of Unshackled was born because um, just because I was on a visa, I was a non-US born person on a visa trying to start a company. Um, and I was told you can't do it, so that became the inspiration to start Unshackled Ventures, and then we did that in 2014. Here we are talking about investing in immigrants.
1: That's wonderful. And uh, well, just to, to take you back uh, back to India and such, uh, what, what was your father doing in India for business when first getting started?
0: Um, he he ran a small manufacturing company, or company is too much of an exaggeration, but uh, you know, small. Firm manufacturing plastic goods, so you know, household items like cups, plates, spoons, etc. Um, he would make them and, and sell them. It was a one man show for a long time, and then I saw him grow the business a bit with a few employees, but it was as SMB as it gets.
1: That's incredible. I mean, I, I imagine you must have a very practical sense having that exposure from an early age.
0: Uh, practical is one way to, to put it. The other characteristics I uh, I think that fit better would be frugal, um, extreme grit, hard working, you know, work ethic, um, and a very fair way of doing business. Like from what I remember from the earliest days, um, seeing my dad operate his business was just an in incredibly fair way. Whether it was paying his workers, paying his vendors. Uh, charging customers, everything revolved around, we got to be fair in business.
1: I see. And uh, did that influence getting into accounting? Did that, do you think that that experience uh, influenced your decision getting into accounting in terms of, you know, tallying up and making sure things align and being, (laughs) you know, balancing everything out? Do you you think that inspired you? Uh, Not at all. I hate accounting.
0: Uh, (laughs) Okay. I never practiced accounting, to be honest. I I, the decision to get into accounting wasn't mine. It was my dad's, and it was influenced by everybody in our family should just be chartered accountant. And so I was told that I need to become a chartered accountant. I wanted to become a software engineer, um, but uh, you know that just wasn't meant to be. So I did CA because my dad wanted me to. Um, and then when it was time to get a job, my my number one objective was to not become a desk accountant. So I passed on 40 job offers until I found a, a job as a management training at ABB, which would make me travel and give me a broader perspective of business besides accounting. And, and you know, I think that was the the best 40 decisions made. Um, to, to pass on those 40 desk accounting jobs or I would today be CFO somewhere.
1: Oh my gosh, that's that's quite unique. Uh, you you certainly had it in you to, to go to take that route. And tell me about some of the learnings you had in, in that experience um, when you w- started working with AB&B. What, what were some things that you learned from that experience that helped you today?
0: There was a... A few different aspects so there was the core business element so abb is a very large company like a siemens right so they're 42 different business units making small um switches to the largest transformers deployed in the world and so um just from a different different types of businesses at different scales but also a lot of personal development for me because I was a 22-year-old working in a team where the next youngest person was 37. Oh um, everybody else on my team was a, was an ABB veteran who had joined ABB straight out of engineering school and grew up within ABB. So they were all experts in a domain, whether it was manufacturing or engineering or civil or you know whatever aspect they brought to the table. The... the Great aspect. The great part of that was I got to learn from them. The downside was I was the kid, and so I had to invent a way to make myself valuable, and I did that by becoming the expert at extracting information out of SAP, and and that that became my thing um, as part of that team. That that gave everybody else a reason to to come to me for that particular aspect, and um, you know that. It was my way of earning the respect of that
1: very, very experienced team. I like the strategy. That's really interesting. And so tell me how, how you transitioned from ABB into Deloitte again, where, where that transition happened.
0: Uh, very fortunate on my part that I, that I accepted a meeting on the way to the airport with Deloitte. So, so somewhere along the way, Deloitte saw what I was doing at ABB and they pursued me for about six months to, oh my. to join them.
1: And, um, I just, Wait, what was your picked- condition if you did join them? But. <laughs> uh,
0: there was none. It was simply a function of time because I was traveling 28 days a month. Oh, um, right.
1: So you were ready to get to a desk. It sounded like <laughs> I, wasn't. Uh, oh, I wow. wasn't,
0: I wasn't, I was just having fun. And because I was traveling so much, I was never in the place where they wanted to meet me. And uh-huh, yeah. so, so one time they were, I was, uh, leaving Delhi and they were, in Delhi. And I said, look, I have this 30 minutes on the way to the airport. (laughs) I'll I'll meet you. And I remember meeting them at a hotel on the way to the airport. um, And I, you know, by the time I landed, uh, I had an offer letter. uh, You're joking. So um, it was it was truly just I think they like they were so determined that they they wanted my skill set.
1: Awesome,
0: because um, they were setting up this function in India where they wanted Deloitte Consulting to be um, to have an extension in India, and, and yeah. uh, I'm I'm just amazed that they that they approached it that way. Um, turned out to be another small decision, but big impact from the decision because I would not have I don't know how else I would have found a way to the U.S. and into uh, Silicon Valley if I didn't take yeah.
1: that. Okay, so this was your bridge into Silicon Valley. I like how you you kind of laid it out up front, and, I, and we're kind of retracing our steps here. This is really fun. I, I'm enjoying this a lot. So you're at Deloitte. You're in India. You, you've just landed this amazing job, and um, you're you're working in India primarily. And then, how does the Silicon Valley story start to develop?
0: So when I was hired at Deloitte, they they said we want you to integrate our US practice with this team that we're building in India. I said, sounds interesting, um, let's do it. And the day I started at some date in February of 2005, I said, I'm glad that you want me to do it, but I know nothing about how your US team works. So what am I integrating? And right. therefore two weeks later, I found myself in Silicon Valley oh, to work nice for three months to work with deloitte consulting here in silicon valley understand the the way of life and how we work with our clients here three months became six months and then i went back to to india to um to do the integration which was about training the team there working on how to collaborate with the with the team in the us but that was also the time when uh deloitte was growing really really fast and they wanted me to come back here so the the teams that i had worked with here um, really were the the pull to to for me to come back here. So I did that mm-hmm. sort of come here, go back, come here, go back for a few months. Nice. And I was like, you know, guys, um, I think we gotta we gotta pick a spot. I'm either working in India or I'm working here, and I kind of like it here. So how about we make a deal and that's I great. Just Work out of Silicon Valley, and and so it happened.
1: And how many years did you stay with Deloitte? Five years total. Oh, incredible! That must have been just such an experience. And so you're you're five years in. What year are we now? Are kind of nearing the, the end of your end of two thousand nine. And so you've had a ton of exposure to Silicon Valley and the bridge between India and Silicon Valley, the tech ecosystem, etc. You're you're fully immersed here at this point. Um, so when do you when do you start thinking about venture capital? When's that trigger point for you? I think outside of that consulting. It,
0: it wasn't. Uh, so while I was at Deloitte. Um, the first call it six to eight months, I worked at worked with larger, uh, companies as clients. So HP, mm-hmm. Brocade, Hyperion, Gilead type of clients. Um, and that was quite boring. And so I started looking around me and there was all these startups that were becoming popular. So I started asking within Deloitte, uh, what are we doing with startups? And the answer was, we don't do anything because they don't See. pay much. Um, or audit is the team that, the audit and tax work with startups, not consulting. And so that became inspiration to start a practice that could um, become meaningful for startups. And and we started that practice, it it started working out where we would go in with small projects and help startups manage growth. So, you know, as things start, when the flywheel starts churning, you don't have enough time to put in the people, processes and structures. To, to manage that. And so right. we became that extension for the management team to be able to do that, which is how I discovered VCs is, you know, uh-huh. so where are these resources coming from? Oh, there's this thing called VCs who fund, yeah. um, who fund startups to grow fast. Um, and so my last call at three, four years was, or three years at Deloitte was where I started networking with VCs because, you know, companies they were investing in were, were becoming potential target clients for me. Um, right. And in that process, I met Osman Rashid at Chegg. Um, Osman is an uh, immigrant from Pakistan. He started Chegg after he got his uh, green card. And um, I got to know him at Chegg, but then towards the end of 2009, uh, he asked me if I would join him on his next company, which is how I took. Uh, I got my first startup job, really? um, which was being controller and CFO at tech company called No. Um, okay. So that's where my direct VC exposure came in as the team that was raising money from VCs. And so had the fortune uh, of working with, or a great fortune of working with First Earn Capital, uh, Floodgate, Andreessen Horowitz, Intel Capital. Um, we had, Incredible. at No, we had a phenomenal team and a, and a great uh, investor base. And so that was where my real VC exposure came
1: in okay and um, wow and you say so how long were you with this uh, startup for two and a half years and then so you're you're now i uh, did i uh, presume there may have been like an exit or something did you uh,
0: there was an exit but uh after i left so so oh, yeah. my last six months when i was at no i was also moon uh moonlighting on an idea with a couple of friends and our internal promise was when we have three paying customers, we'll all quit our jobs and go full time on it. So we got the three cool. customers. Um, and that was the time to then, then quit. And that's the first time in seven and a half years of being on an H1B, someone told me, you can't do that. You're on H1B. Oh. You can't just leave your job and, and start a company. You, you, you need someone to sponsor your visa. And, uh, I was like, that doesn't sound right. Um, it's you know I should be you should be able to you are the attorney you should be able to give me a way to do what I want to do and right. um, I also went to the VCs I I knew and checked and you know they all had a similar ish answer which is we can introduce you to attorneys who have helped our, our portfolio founders I know enough attorneys I need I need a solution not not a counsel huh. uh, and that was kind of so so. That process took about a year for me to really understand all the nuances of immigration, figure out a way for how I will be full-time, but it took a lot of time away from building the core thing that we are supposed to be building as as founders, and so um, that became the inspiration for starting Unshackled as a mechanism for founders to not be slowed down or waste their time on becoming immigration experts, but Mm -hmm. really do what you want to do and let us as your partners take care of everything around your journey as an immigrant you focus on your journey as an entrepreneur
1: awesome okay this will this will be a great transition for us to go into section 2 on entrepreneurial risk so you're suggesting again that you were looking to to go out and start a company but you being on an H1B you found that you found that you had kind of like a there was a bottleneck and it gave you inspiration to look at what some solutions were for other people in this similar circumstance. Now, in the pre-show, we talked a little bit about this uh, green card, you know, two thousand five shift. Do you want to share a bit more about that?
0: Yeah, there was a two thousand five is a, is a decent marker. I don't know if there's a you know specific date that triggered it, but right around that time frame, the t- the time it took for someone to get their green card started shifting to take much longer. Especially if you are from a country like India, where I was born, it would take you 15, 20, 25 years to get your green card. The reason green card is important in this equation is green card makes you visa independent, which means you don't have to work for somebody else. Once you have your green card, you can, you can work or not work or be self-employed. You can do whatever you want Um, as a person who's born in the U S is able to do Mm -hmm. so. When when the duration for how long you're going to be on a visa, meaning you're waiting for a green card, as that expanded, mm-hmm. more people are now spending their times and especially their prime risk-taking years working for an employer versus starting their companies, even though they I'm want sure. to start their companies. And so that was the dilemma that I was in in 2012, is do I continue to work at a company or... Do I start my own company? If I start my own company, I'm taking that immigration risk in addition to the typical entrepreneurial risks mm-hmm. where I'm comfortable with the entrepreneurial risk. But when you're taking an immigration risk, you're risking your status, your right to be in mm-hmm. the U.S. You're also risking your family if you have a family, right? Because yeah. they may be dependent on your immigration status. So, so that's the part that kind of really starts uh, slowing people down
1: mm-hmm.
0: is... Um, I should just start, I should keep working for the bigger company until I get my green card. But by the time you get your green card, your situation has changed, uh, in terms of how much risk you can take and the areas of your expertise may have shifted, right? So what you could have built as a company when you were ready to take risk, that, that domain may not be as, um, as ripe for an entrepreneurial yeah. venture. So there's a lot of things that, that move uh we're we're in a time frame where the speed of innovation is really, really fast. So if you don't take advantage of the opportunity in front of you when it when it appears, um you're missing that opportunity. And unfortunately for a lot of founders who are on visas, it's not their choice that they have to miss that opportunity. It's the it's the circumstances um that because of which they have to to miss that opportunity. And we hope that we are that equalizer to some extent that um you know, by enabling founders who are not slowed down by their immigration status, uh, we're able to still help them build great products, build great companies, create jobs for Americans and, um, and therefore create wealth for everybody else.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. And I, I don't know if this is too off topic. Um, I'll just kind of give up, give what I might think my understanding is. Um, I understand that there are some companies that, that, form in foreign countries, and then they make these companies subsidiaries with a U.S. headquartered Delaware C Corp, for example, and the founder's uh, headquarter in the United States. Is this something you help your companies with, or is this a new innovation, or what is this?
0: It's it's a mechanism that has existed for a long time, and it works for, for founders who start somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a there's a mechanism for executive transfer, L one visa, um, where if you are an executive and you have a company outside the U S. and you have another company in the U S. you can as an executive you can transfer from a foreign country company in the foreign country to your U S. company, mm-hmm. um, and and that's one channel that's one of the many types of visas that are available under Hmm. our immigration code the immigration code is kind of like the tax code right there's a Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different types of incomes and exemptions and deductions but not everybody's an expert at tax and just like that not every founder is an expert at immigration so um there's there's a lot of nuance in in all of that but the the, the channel that you described does work for certain founders the, the founders that we're more focused on are founders that are, are individuals who have made their way to the U.S. already. They came to the That's U.S. It. either for school or to work. Like I came here with work. Um, or in some cases, um, they're immigrating as families, whether it's for refuge, whether it's because, you know, their parents moved here and, and mm-hmm. uh, the founders were children when they came here. But either any of these mechanisms, they were, they were born outside the U.S. They are now in the U.S. Um, that's the population that we're primarily focused on. Very few of our, our founders are currently outside the U.S. who we uh, bring into the U.S. Those, those are more exceptions in the norm.
1: Mm-hmm. I understand. And how long can it take for this process to take place at times for those who are on an H1B and want to transfer through that process? What have you seen in terms of time ranges? What are some hiccups you've seen along the way for certain individuals?
0: You know, look, anything that has something to do with the government is unpredictable. Um, and, and we have an internal, uh, when we invest in founders and we start helping them with immigration and stuff, we tell them, look, it's like pulling teeth. Immigration is going to be painful, but we are going to make it as less painful for you as possible. So instead of, instead of kind of answering that question directly in terms of what are the hiccups, I would answer it from a more solution mindset, which is Mm -hmm. if, if someone who is on a visa wants to start a company, there is a way. That way has to be figured out by talking to the person and really getting into the details of their specific place of birth, country of birth, citizenship, education, experience. Um, There's just a lot that goes into determining what would be the right pathway Mm -hmm. for their immigration, for them to be able to do what they want to do. But there's always a way and, you know, that's the approach with which we operate is if mm-hmm. we want to back an innovator, we're going to find a way for them to work on their ambitious plans in some form. And and our team will enable them to be able to do it. Um, for some, it may be a matter of a day. For some, it may take three months, but mm-hmm. we'll get them there. And, and you know, we have a None of our portfolio founders, we have a 100% track record in um, making sure that our portfolio founders that we've partnered with uh, have maintained their status and achieved uh, the goals that they're trying to achieve in terms of being able to work on their company full time uh, or be working on the product full time.
1: Congratulations. Um,
0: and, you know, thank you. Uh, it, it comes because we take a very personalized approach to immigration, and that's why you won't see us writing blog posts or tweets about what, you know, what can be, what, what is not doable or, or one way that works for everybody, because it doesn't.
1: That's good. That's good. It's, it's prudent. It's, it's, um, you're, you're taking it into consideration people's futures and livelihoods. That's a good responsibility to carry. <laughs> that's, I, like, I like that approach. Okay. Well, so, I, I mean, you did discuss the personal risk aspect and I, I don't want to harp on that too long. I guess one question I have for you um, that's more of a strategic one is how do you find these founders? So what, what are, what's the type of founder that would be ideal for you? Is it someone that's working at a university or is it someone that has like a more of a scientific background? What are the general prototypes of founders you're looking for?
0: There isn't one to be honest. The huh. the what we look for is people who want to solve big problems and have the um, have the grit, the tenacity, the skills to be able to do it. Um, really, if you ask me what are we looking for is we ideally want to meet founders before they know that they're founders. So huh, you know, a lot of our investing happens before the company even formed. Like huh. more than half of our investments we do through a pre-incorporation agreement. <laughs> that's how early really? we like to invest. So if if wow. you, you ask for a prototype, I would say if you are a person who's been told by others that you can't start a company because you're on a visa, you're a prototype for us. Um, oh, interesting. It, we're going to change that for you. And so, but but obviously, we're not a social enterprise. We're not. Uh, you know, we're not going to work with everybody we see, and that's that's part of being a VC is. Um, you have to be selective. You have to back mm-hmm. people who are truly um, the the kind of folks that can build uh, very, very large companies. Um, and, and a lot of founders we meet are great individuals, uh, but they may be working on something that is not a great fit for a venture-backed style mm-hmm. of building a company, um, or they are not, in our opinion, uh, they may not be great as entrepreneurs but they could be great early employees and such and so um you know as you know as a vc yourself you you, you meet a you meet a lot of folks who think they are instantaneously venture-backable and, and they're not right, so yeah. all in all long way of saying that the there is no one prototype it's about Understood. uh it's about finding that that individual or, or team of individuals who are taking on big problems and and show the potential to be able to solve that. And if they are able to do it, they can create a massive business out of it.
1: So, so awesome. And this is just more out of curiosity again. I don't think this is necessarily that relevant, but I'm just curious kind of what countries you've seen from pe- people from what countries around the world you've seen and maybe some stories of a couple of a couple companies and companies you like and things like that.
0: The list of countries from which we haven't seen founders is much shorter. According, <laughs> I think there's 185 identified companies and we have seen founders from 160. Amazing. Um, in our pipeline.
1: Um, you, must have have to spe- in, yeah, you must have to speak a lot of languages at your firm. Now, I, I imagine everyone <laughs> speaks English. <laughs> uh, for,
0: fortunately, we, we don't have to because, uh, yeah. you know, most of these founders... Um, speak English and of course most of these countries have English as uh, at least the second language but uh, that said we have invested in founders from tw- born in 28 countries uh, so it's a, it's a very diverse uh, portfolio not just in in diversity from a from a gender or, or orientation standpoint but diversity of thoughts and so um, there's there's really no sort of uh, I, I don't know how to say, but there's no domination of, of, of one kind or the other, and, and part of it is the, our portfolio kind of reflects the country, right? Because we mm-hmm. we, we attract people from all over the world, uh, right. people who believe that they can build a great future, people who believe that they can solve big problems because America has the infrastructure and the ecosystem to, to build great businesses and, and solve big problems. Uh, we attract those problem solvers and, and we consider it part of our role is to enable them in in solving those.
1: I'm so curious about how you educate or inspire the people who may, I mean, I don't know what ratio of people are on the fence about becoming entrepreneurs when you start having those conversations. I'm just wondering kind of on a practical basis, what that conversation can be like, like how it evolves. <laughs> I know um, that's quite general.
0: We we tend to refrain from doing that. You you don't want to be in the business of making entrepreneurs. Um, I, I don't think that's a that's a great business. But understand the, the part that we love doing is not just picking winners, but helping athletes become winners. And so I see there's a difference, which is I don't want to inspire someone to become an athlete, but the person who is determined to become an athlete can we help them become an athlete and become a winner uh that's like a coach do so so therefore the you know where we play on that fence is if someone's not sure if they are an entrepreneur or not they have to do that discovery on their own but if someone's determined to be an entrepreneur and the um, and and the only thing standing in their way is because they were not born in the u.s that part we can solve for right so um Just because the conditions of your birth were such that you are not eligible to do something or you don't have that friends and family network or the resources, that is solvable. But the determination to be an entrepreneur has to come from within.
1: Amazing. And so tell me about the fund. fund, I think you closed fund one and we didn't actually go through the timeline. What year did you uh, wrap up fund one, your close?
0: We... Raised our fund one in 2014. Started investing from that fund in 2015, and then we closed oh, our second fund in 2017, and we're currently investing from that fund. So from great. That second fund.
1: So so great. Okay, well let's let's keep moving forward here. Uh, we're we're in interest of time. So uh, section three on one invo- environment uh, one environment. Um, you talked to, in the pre-show, you talked about how you engage with corporations and, and perhaps foundations. Do you want to highlight more of that and kind of what the focus there is?
0: Um, I, I think the over overarching view there is that we take a positive view of the world. And, and I, I, my personal take is most entrepreneurs take a positive view of the world uh, in the sense that they focus more on solutions less on problems and mm-hmm. and when you do that you find supporters who really want you to advance in that uh in that solution so um when we started um, obviously there was a two kinds of voices were very prominent number one the voices talking about how successful foreign born entrepreneurs have been in the US and second voice was about um how we're not doing enough to enable foreign-born entrepreneurs to to build in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, what we looked at was well, if both are true, then there has to be a practical solution to to marry them and therefore enable more foreign-born entrepreneurs to be more successful in the U.S. Um, and 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 that view was very much aligned with a, with a, with a number of uh, foundations or investors who believe that. Uh, Immigrants make great entrepreneurs, great company builders, (laughs) and it's great business to invest in them. Um, uh, And and so they partnered with us as as investors, as uh, collaborators on, you know, getting stories out about entrepreneurs. Um, And so we've had the pleasure of being beneficiaries of partnering with such investors or uh, collaborators over
1: the years that's wonderful you had corporate investors and foundations invest in fund two did you have any invest in fund one yes oh amazing that's really an accomplishment
0: uh well <laughs> i i don't know we'll find out in another five years or so <laughs> sure uh, exactly whether, whether what it is but no we've had you know i think we approached raising money for unshackled as raising money for a company. Our first fund was almost a seed round, our second fund was a series A uh, type of approach. And in that mm-hmm. process we found uh that it's not the traditional LP base that's that's really great for uh one, the kind of fund that we're building and two the kind of managers we are because um mm-hmm my partners and I didn't come from traditional VC background. We were learning when we raised our first fund, we were learning on the job. And so we raised from a lot of other VCs and angel investors who had been investing for a long time so we could learn from their experience. But along the way we met foundations and, and family offices and, and corporations who became interested in investing even though it was the first time we were being investors in the first fund. We had a lot more of that in fund two um, and and some of the corporations, professional service providers, who we got to know through the fund one experience, then came in to the second fund um, and invested in the second fund, and we're seeing fantastic. more of that as we continue. Oh,
1: that's that's really a great approach. Um, you see, you almost partnered with them to some degree, in and, and and then they later became your investors. That's fantastic. I have never heard of that strategy before.
0: You know, everybody ultimately we're all kind of working through the basic human psychology right so uh everybody has an interest and if you're doing something that aligns with that interest they want to see you succeed and mm-hmm. if they do that and they have the capability to invest then they want to be part of your success so <laughs> um, I- investing in a fund is is a way to be a part of your success so if, if i see i meet you and i see that you have a great strategy of investing um and and you know you offer me an opportunity to invest in your fund if i align with your viewpoint and your strategy and i think Mm -hmm. you're good at what you do i will take that opportunity if i have the means to invest and so it's a it's it's not a favor on one side or the other No, no it's a mutuality of interest that leads to good outcomes
1: that's that's the one thing I'm, I'm gathering quickly, how important it is to have these relationships and partnerships along the way. And I, I think you've you've obviously uh, done such. Um, you mentioned R&D and you work with partnerships within the fund. Can you help me understand how you help founders that may be more geared toward R&D-centered opportunities, how you're supporting them?
0: Um, it's kind of more of viewpoint that in the early days of building a company, You know, before you actually have a product, you know, you know, the customers you're selling to, um, there, there's a, there's a cycle of customer discovery, product discovery, like, you know, the core tenets, the problem that you're solving or the core technology that you're an expert at, but it's, there's a lot of discovery process in the early days and, you know, corporations kind of call it the R&D phase. Um. But it's, it's just a lot of discovery and research. And so um, a lot of times we meet entrepreneurs who are or innovators who want to spend time on researching or discovering certain aspects, either just, you know, I know that there's a problem, but I need to figure out what's the best way to solve that problem. Because there's, you know, there's the direct head on way and there's a lot of orthogonal ways. Um, at other times, it's I just want to go deeper into this technology area and and come up with something. And so, in those cases, um, you know, we'll hire those researchers or or developers and um, enable them to do the research. If that yeah. becomes a product or a company, uh, we can invest in them. They become portfolio founders. But we, we have an R and D view, and and that lab works for our portfolio companies as well. So. Um, it's, a, it's just another way of enabling the innovation economy and, and staying close to the, uh, the most ambitious foreign-born talent that's coming to the U.S.
1: Fantastic. I love the flexibility here. You, you've thought through so many different ways to, to work within situations. It's fantastic. And um, what are some of the verticals and, and markets that right now are your core focus or others that you're interested in exploring more?
0: Uh, whatever next thing I invest in. <laughs> but, well, you, but you did
1: mention space and AI, I think. It, jokes, during- yeah, jokes aside, we, we take a very
0: founder-driven view too. So uh, we know that we're not experts at everything, right? And therefore, hmm. we're not going to know where the biggest opportunities are. But the founders know where the biggest opportunities are. They are experts in their domain so we kind of separate when we're looking at an investment opportunity we separate the people and the, the product or the business the first thing we want to answer and and that is really what leads to 90 percent of the conviction is do we believe this team or these founders have greatness in them and can they be great company builders if the answer to that is yes then we go into okay. What problem are you working on? The the, the one thing that we've seen uh, over and over again is um, exceptional founders or entrepreneurs don't waste their time on incremental stuff. And so mm-hmm. you, you know, by definition, even if they're working on something that we may think today just feels like oh, this is a small problem or small market or small something, mm-hmm. we know that they're going to learn themselves that this is a small market and they're not going to waste their time on it. And we've seen mm-hmm. this in our portfolio so many times where I see. Um, as founders go through customer discovery, this kind of goes back into that element of before you raise a big seed round and invest and commit to a particular product, a particular mm-hmm. customer base, you want to do discovery on where the biggest problems are, with the biggest willingness to pay is. But... Um, e- a lot of founders will do that discovery and shift from that small problem to big problem. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and we welcome that. So a lot of the sort of internal resources that we have built, the way our community is built is to help founders go through that process faster as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So in in that sense, when you, when you're able to kind of separate, you get to see the world and especially the future world from a founder's perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so therefore, instead of, creating our own biases about where the big opportunities are or big trends are. We let the founders come in and tell us. And through that virtue, we've seen, um, you know, opportunities in space, opportunities in food tech from everything from uh, how we, we produce our food and what goes into that to how food is distributed um, between businesses and, and to consumers, um, you know, uh, create an economy as it largely is being called but but really just the the, the uh, disintermediation and and decentralization of where media comes from um, mm-hmm. is is really really interesting and obviously you know the the developments over the last 20 years in terms of devices and internet have a huge role to play in that um, so we're, we're fintech is is an Ever-changing field, um, so there, there's, you know, those are areas in which we see a lot of, a uh, lot of our pipeline. But that doesn't mean that we're not seeing, you know, other stuff. It's um, we we tend to not get biased by any of any of the hot trends.
1: Before I let you go here, I'm gonna do a little bit of nudging and ask and hold your feet to the fire and tell me about a few of the startups in your portfolio that stand out or that that you want me to highlight. Uh
0: you want to ask something or just
1: no I just I would love to hear like just a few examples of of some startups that stood out to you and and maybe a story or two. I'm I'm really excited about some of the stories behind these startups.
0: Yeah I mean we can talk about you know one that's um, doing it's fintech in africa and um you know we met the founders when they had the ambition of uh there's a there's um, africas a huge uh, economy uh but the infrastructure for enabling commerce is not that great and one big area they saw was uh, the way the african economy is you, you have a lot of smb you don't have you know, big corporate structures like here, and so in that environment, there is no great way for credit to be to be risked or factored, and so they started working on a mechanism to capture data um, from uh, individuals that could that could become a a source to figure out how to assess their credit. Uh, it's not through the credit score mechanism the way we have it here, which is largely linked to uh, your spending and debt Um, but it's more their approach is more behavioral Uh, and and the speed at which they've been growing and and their customers are you know banks institutions insurance companies educational institutions who use this data to be able to assess what their customers need or how to price their customers Um, it's it's that shift away from um your how you how you handle money to just who you are because now we have a lot more data nice. on on people um
1: and what's the name of that company again
0: they're, they're called juni j-u-n-i or juni. ping me now now called Juni. um you know we in this case again the, the problem was less understood to us because obviously we we don't know africa as well as they do but the yeah. founders were uh, were what we invested in, and through them, we've been learning more about Africa. We have another company, uh, called Sote that's doing logistics in Africa. So we, we now have a, a decent vantage point in terms of learning from them to understand how, uh, things are evolving in Africa. Um, a, a very different type of team, which was, you know, very raw young, uh, founders, uh, at at uh, Digital Brain, uh, Keshav and, and Dima, um, these are 22-year-olds uh, when we when we met them, but, you know, their lived experiences are, are more than, I'm about double their age, and, and their lived experiences are, are better quality and uh, deeper than, than mine. And, and so just incredibly impressive people. Um, the, the the analytical framework that that they have in terms of how they assess problems and, and solutions, how they assess opportunities, how they've made decisions uh, in their life. Uh, Keshav grew up on a coconut farm and became a two-times world champion in, in uh, Rubik's Oh team.
1: What? Wow. Um,
0: and, and is now building a company that's, that's, uh, that's making it... That's like superhuman for customer success. So it's making customer success reps significantly more efficient with what they need to do. Um, so, you know, we, we, I know you wanted to hear a, a, a couple of stories, but there's so many, I can, I can go on and on. And I know, say, I know. I, and
1: I'm sorry to do that to you. I know you love every one of your companies. You're just, I, it's, I know. It's just, it's there's,
0: hard to there's do. such incredible I know. Uh, breadth of, of experiences and stories and backgrounds sure. that, um, you know, being in our position is, is really a privilege in the in, in the truest sense of the word.
1: Yeah, you're you're, uh, you're the right person to be doing this. And it's been a, a real honor to have you on the show. And, and I invite you back. It's been wonderful. And uh, before I let you go, um, just want to just give you a last chance if you want to share any upcoming events or um, with listeners or maybe ways to reach out get engaged with what you're working on
0: yeah the, the call to action really is if you are an entrepreneur or a future entrepreneur and and you've been told you can't do it just reach out to us uh, we're one of the very few venture funds that respond to everything that comes into us uh, if you go to our website there's an open pitches form uh, everyone whether we get introduced to someone or someone finds it directly everyone fills that form it goes to our entire team we all look at the information and then meetings get scheduled um, with the founders but that's that's our way of saying how uh, cold intros and warm intros carry the same weight We, we we don't discriminate between cold and warm um but yeah really just if you if you want to build something and you want to solve big problems uh
1: please reach out We've had amazing guests on the show, and I'm very grateful for all of your support. The show is now available also on Google. It's available on Amazon. It's available on pretty much all the platforms, iTunes. We would love any positive feedback you could give on iTunes especially. Leave us a review and keep listening. Appreciate it.